Hello, friend. Thanks, as always, for listening to The Tully Show. If you enjoy insiders' accounts of the golden age of rock and roll, and let's face it, who doesn't? You're definitely going to enjoy today's show. A quick heads up, there will not be a new Tully Show next week. I'm taking the family away for a few days. It's complicated. It's boring. But this is your reminder, the fun never stops at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. I've got recently released songs. Who else is talking about Lou Reed and Bananarama on the same show? This guy, a critical yet whimsical look back at the year that was 1990, plus the weekly Tully Time Wacky News Headline Roundup. And that's just what's going up this week. You party, bro? Come party. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Coming to you live on tape from an above ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, the rare figure from rock history who rose to rare heights both as a performer and behind the scenes he has lived to tell the tale and indeed has written a memoir entitled rock and roll warrior my misadventures with alice cooper prince george clinton living color the runaways and more available for pre-sale now hello and welcome david liebert hey mike how you doing thank you look at all of those platinum and gold records behind you i always wanted to have a room i've got i've got one gold record on the floor over there but it doesn't have my name anywhere on it it was a hand-me-down well let's just hope i don't have to smelt those things down someday i guess that's the thing if you don't have to sell off the the first the first big win is getting the platinum records on the wall and the second big win is not having to yet to to smelt them that's right you know i've worked on uh i've co-written a couple of memoirs and autobiographies for people and a big part of the process obviously is that life is messy and your memory is jumbled and you have all these little pieces and fragments in your brain and the process of laying it out chronologically it's like you're making sense of your life for the people who are going to read it but in a weird sort of way you like make sense of your life for yourself when you put all the stuff in order looking back like when the book is done and you're reading the, something like the final draft looking at your own professional life how did it strike you like can you believe that was all you um and you know looking back on it i had to say wow you know when you're living it it doesn't seem to um you know, you're just living your life every every day. So each day is, you know, its own separate day. I never really thought much of it. It was my girlfriend, Angie, who says, you know, you've lived an interesting life. You should put it all down in a book. And uh, when we finally got done with all the edits and, uh, you know, I looked at it, I said, yeah, I I guess I did leave a pretty, a pretty cool life. Uh, uh, life. It was an experience on a lot of different levels. So yeah, yeah, it's sort of, I sort of went wow at the end of it all. So your professional life, the, the highlights of your professional life begin. I, I personally, I love the stuff about all the Tin Pan Alley and, and the songwriting. And uh, I, I mean, I could just talk all day about what it's like to have, for example, Carol King 
drop by an office when you're, you know, uh, 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 just trying to sell some tunes to people. But it it takes off in earnest with this group that you're in, The Happenings. And if the name of the band doesn't ring a bell for everyone listening, everyone knows. For me, the song is See You in September. It wasn't an original, but your cover version is the definitive version of that song. To me, that's the one that I know. What's it like to go from obscurity to, to being a big deal to have it. What's it like to have a hit in 1966? What does that do to a guy from Patterson, New Jersey? What does that do to your life? Well, it was kind of surreal. You know, we, uh, uh, we, uh, we really didn't as a band, we really didn't want to go with the happenings as a single. We thought, uh, another song that our lead singer, Bobby Miranda had written would be a, uh, had far more commercial value. And, uh, but, uh, in the end, uh, the uh, record promotion guy, uh, the late Mickey uh, Eichner, simply beat us into submission. He wanted to put out See You in September. He thought that it was a hit, and he felt that if we didn't put it out, if it was going to be a hit, it was going to be a summer hit. And he wanted to put it out towards the end of May. And uh, he simply beat me and the rest of the happenings into submission. And then when it came out, uh, I guess it was sent out to about 4,000 top 40 uh, uh, format radio stations. Not one single station decided to play it. And uh, we go, oh, God, you know, Mickey, uh, Mickey screwed up. He made a big mistake. Or did he? He started to call in favors, and he, he got a couple of big stations to go on it and begged them to give it a few weeks to see what would happen. And, and pretty soon it, uh, it started to gain some traction and uh, uh, got a couple of breaks. I guess there's a lot of luck involved in all of this as well. You know, we got a couple of breaks. It ended up uh, being a huge summer hit and um, it uh, kind of put the happenings on the map. Right. Luck seems like it played a fairly substantial role both in your musical success and then in the stuff that you transitioned into. It's it's pretty crazy to think of because the, 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 your track record working with artists speaks for itself. Obviously, you were at the, at the very least competent at your job. And to me, my parents listened to a lot of oldies radio and a lot of those songs did, never did anything for me. That sounds like a <laughs> that sounds like a hit song. It sounds very of its its time. So there, there was that luck involved there, and then it was also there was also some luck and happenstance that led to you transitioning from uh, "Hello to Your Dog" entering in the background, yeah. tra- transitioning from being in front of the crowd to being behind the stage. Right? How did that all? Yeah. How did that transition happen? Well, at some point, um, while I was in the happenings, uh, we uh, we decided. Uh, to get rid of our manager and I took over most of the management duties and uh, I started to realize that uh, you know I, I don't know how long this happening things is going to go but uh, I could see a far more uh, enduring quality in the business end than the uh, uh, you know being a musician I mean I said you know I can manage other bands I'm not sure how long I could be a happening I don't think I could be a happening forever and uh, by the time I left the happenings four years after 
you know, see you in September. I was pretty much, uh, I was pretty much ready to, to be on the sidelines. Uh, you know, people say, do you miss not being on stage and performing? I guess the short answer is no, I really don't. Uh, uh, I like the business end and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I felt comfortable in doing that. Right, because we've seen all of the acts. Lou Christie, you mentioned in the book I saw not that long ago. Lou Christie, me and my mom went to go see Frankie Valli and the the current four seasons or the then current four seasons. So that could have been your life. You could have been performing the the happenings hits for the last 50 years as well. It strikes me, and I, I guess it, it, it doesn't seem all that, you don't seem all that surprised by it yourself for most people there's a really big difference between the sort of person who's talent and the sort of person who works alongside and and supports talent for very many people it would be hard to swallow the ego and to go from being the guy that has all the eyes in them to being the person who you know I, I you don't seem like the kind of person that would have stood for having somebody whip a whiskey bottle at your head but to a certain extent Talent needs to be coddled, and it's hard to go from being the person who might be coddled to being the person who occasionally has to coddle. You didn't find that all that challenging. No, no. And uh, and even though I, I stepped off the stage, it didn't mean that I wasn't uh, uh, being music creative in other aspects of, uh, of music. I found myself in the studio a lot. I did background singing on a lot of the artists uh, with whom I was associated and uh, uh, other people recorded some of the songs that I had written. So it wasn't just a complete departure from the creative aspects of music. Um, but uh, I, um, I like being in that position. Uh, I don't think it was, uh, you know, I, it wasn't that the happenings were enormous and I missed the adulation. I mean, there was a little bit of that cause we had some hit records, but uh, that was never the driving force uh, for me. I, uh, I just decided maybe I should learn as much about this industry as I can. And that will be uh, a value to valuable to me in my, uh, in my future when I'm no longer a habit. Depending on how you want to look at it, you either pick the right or wrong time to be working you know, with artists and artist management and tour managing. When people think of the golden age of the rock star, when people picture the television set going out the hotel window into the hotel or motel pool, that's when you were on the road with some of the most notorious hard partying bands. How was that era, if at all, different in reality than people like me have come to know it or the way that we've come to see it in, in motion pictures, the real hedonism of the rock star era. Well, there was, there was that, but um, I don't think it was as much of a lifestyle as it was an outward manifestation of, uh, of something else. Listen, when you're on the road, it's grueling. <clears throat> you got to get up early. You got to eat a get on that bus or catch a plane, <clears throat> it's work. And uh, you um, <clears throat> have to be ready to perform. And so um, your day isn't taken up by wrecking hotel rooms or throwing televisions out the way. Does it happen? 
yeah, you know, after a show and, uh, you know, band feels great and they get drunk and they're having a great time and they get a little bit crazy or they're angry about something. But in my experience with uh, some of these notorious bands, it was um, it was more of a, you know, it was more the exception than the rule. Maybe they were just trying to blow off a little bit of steam and and that's how it manifested itself. But, uh, you know, it was hard work. It's business, you know. If, uh, uh, so most of the concentration really for most band members was doing their job, you know, being able to do it. It speaks very highly of you that so many of, uh, just about all of the high profile people that you worked with blurbed your book i noticed that right away and i actually found the blurbs to be kind of a a a guide a map to to getting through the book and trying to find stuff that might be interesting to talk to you about in the time we have together here today um i understand what you just said and duly noted but alice cooper is the first really big act that you worked on the road with after the happenings he was kind enough to blurb your book and says if the fires of insanity were burning david was fanning the flames. So I tend to think of the the road manager as being the guy saying, guys, 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 you know, we've got a, a bus ride in, in six hours. Why would he have said that you would have been the ones most likely to be fanning the flames? When I got the job with Alice Cooper, that was my first major job with a major act. Uh, I, uh, I decided that in order for me to be able to do this job, because the guy prior to me, who had the job, they just ate him up alive and spit out the pieces. And I said, you know, these people are tough. I got to be tough too. I, I'm not going to let that happen to me because I really wanted the job. But I had to be, besides being tough, I had to be good at it. I had to be respected and I, I needed them to like me. Um, and I had to make it fun for them. That's, I thought, was the uh, the hidden element. Uh be very good at it and show these guys a good time and they'll love you for it. And, uh, I guess they, um, I guess I made it better for them than they ever had it on the road. I'm going to brag about anything. I, we all had a great time together and I don't think any of them really wanted to screw that up or change any of that. So, um, um, we were all in it together. It was like one big family. And, uh, you know, uh, I think I said in the book, if I could pick the one, per- you know, we had like 40, 50 people on the road. If I could pick the one person who was the least amount of trouble than any of them, it would have to be Alice Cooper himself. If he had to be in the lobby at 822, uh, if I, uh, you know, he was in the lobby at 822. Whereas um, every once in a while, you know, I had to kick somebody's hotel door in just to get him, get him up and, you know, and running. Uh, we would, you know, I wanted it to be efficient. I wanted it to be a well-oiled machine and I wanted everybody to have fun. And I guess the New Jersey in me gave everybody sort of uh, became sort of sarcastic and everybody had to be a good sport and you know you had to be a pretty good sport to be on the road with uh, the alice cooper group but that's what made it fun and and uh 
I think that was the secret to my success with uh, certainly with the Alice Cooper band. The second part of Alice Cooper's blurb is every morning's flight began with roll call and the ball scores. <laughs> now, I know what roll call means. What's a ball score? I had created this thing. Uh, you know, let me preface that yes. whole thing by saying I didn't want the book to be a a tell-all, crazy, sexy, balls and tits flying all over the place kind of thing. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a little bit of that in there, of course. Just it's a tasteful amount. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I didn't want that to be the intent of the book. But one of the, th but, you know, on the road, there's, there's a lot of women. There's a lot of groupies. We had parties after every show. There was always a lot of women there. So everybody's uh, partying with uh, women every night. And uh, to amuse everybody, as I said, you know, it was part of my job was to keep everybody amused. I created this thing called the ball scores. High for the night, the person who ended up with the prettiest girl. Uh, uh, if And that would nominate her for high high for the week and then i made up some stupid things like uh high for the night doubles and you know i would say you know according to my calculations there were three four ways four three ways two <laughs> five ways and one one way i'm looking at you joe gannon and you know uh, so it was it was kind of it was all you know bullshit but uh, everybody enjoyed it it uh, it entertained some people and infuriated others, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I think everybody found it very entertaining. I just watched the Netflix series that Mike Myers made, uh, the Pentaveret. I don't know if you've, if you've seen it, but the idea is there's this secret society of five people at any given time that are sort of pulling the strings and are the puppet masters for the world, like the Illuminati. And one of the five characters that Mike Myers plays is Shep Gordon. And at the time, I thought it was just a joke that so-and-so from Oxford University and so-and-so economist and Alice Cooper's old manager. I, I just thought it was a, I literally did not know that Shep Gordon was a real person at all. And then I find out Mike Myers has made a documentary about the real life Shep Gordon. So obviously he feels very affectionate about him. Yes. As somebody who worked alongside a person who honestly I had not heard of until recently. Why do you think Mike Myers would see him? as one of the guys who could be five people pulling the strings on the entire world behind the scenes. What kind of guy are we talking about here? We're talking about a, a fascinating uh, uh, character. I mean, Chef Gordon was my mentor. I learned 99% of what I know about the industry from Chef Gordon. He was, uh, he was a genius and he, um, he was really the brains behind Alice Cooper I mean, uh, not to take anything away from Alice, but it was Shep and Alice together that created this whole uh, um, Alice uh, Cooper image. And uh, and uh, he also was a was a media guru. He knew he could turn anything into a media event. Uh, he could turn a bad thing into a media event. He... Um, I remember uh, we were doing a show at the Hollywood uh, Bowl, and um, this is typical of Shep Gordon. Uh, uh, he had hired a helicopter, 
to drop 18,000 paper panties on the audience. The, I think it was the School's Out album. The record sleeve was actually a pair of paper panties. But the panties were manufactured in Israel and did not conform to the uh, United States Flammable uh, Clothing Act. And they got held up in customs. And uh, so now there's, you think, well, th th that's a big problem. Now, how are we going to get them out of customs? A chef saw it as an opportunity. The next thing you know, there's articles all over the world. Uh, Alice Cooper's panties, too hot to handle. Alice Cooper's panties banned in the U. You know all of this. Alice Cooper's panties too hot to handle, and uh, so that made a great story uh, in the media all over the world. Somehow or other, he was able to get him out of uh, customs at the last minute, and uh, they were the panties were rained down upon the eighteen thousand uh, <laughs> uh, concert goers uh, that night. So that's a typical. You know, to our, I remember for the Billion Dollar Babies album, a uh, British uh, photographer, well-known uh, photographer, David Bailey, um, they set up a, a, a photo session with the band with uh, a whole bunch of money on the table with white rabbits and Alice holding this cute little baby with uh, Alice Cooper makeup. And uh, David is shooting a bunch of shots. And uh, then I start to notice that the rabbits are starting to eat the money. <laughs> Chef thinks this is hysterical. Uh, I think I'm going to come up short when I have to count the money back. I'm responsible. Chef uh, saw that as another golden opportunity. You know, money hungry, uh, greedy, money hungry rabbits. So that became a he could turn anything into a into a news article. That was one of his great talents, among many other things. One of the many people you've also worked with is Bootsy Collins, and you you had a, a long history with Bootsy. Now, the first time a person my age would have encountered him, probably if you even remember this act, this dance act, Delight. He was in the Grooves in the Heart music video. He was right, and I remember just so. Okay, I don't know. I don't know who that guy is, but it's obvious to me that's a very, very big deal. It's a big deal that he's here. I can just feel this coming off of him. He seems like he. Ha if anybody has obvious star charisma, it's Bootsy Collins. But he also blurbed your book, and he said that when he didn't have anything going on. You were the person who recognized the star potential of Bootsy Collins. Tell me about the Bootsy that you knew before the world knew about him. Well, I'd love to take the credit for it, but it was so obvious. I mean, that uh, Bootsy was going to be a star. First of all, he was being produced by George Clinton. Bootsy's rubber band was the opening act for every P-Funk uh, concert. Uh, he was signed to Warner Brothers. Warner's was very, it, it didn't take a genius to see where all this was going. <laughs> so as much as I'd like to take the credit, uh, really, it was that obvious. And uh, uh, being that obvious, you know, I, I tried to accommodate Boosie as best I could until he's, uh, you know, his career really started to kick in, which didn't take very long at all, quite frankly. <laughs> you also worked with um, the Runaways, and uh, did you did you did you ever read Lita Ford's book? 
No, no, I didn't. Uh, I didn't. I read Cherie Curry's book. Okay, I know I haven't read that one. It seems like it was. I, I didn't need to read the book to know that it was a wild ride for the the runaways. But you know, some of the details obviously painted that picture um, more fully than than what I knew going in. Again, from just the blurbs of the book, <coughs> Cherry Curry of the Runaways says you were known for a couple of things: your upbeat style. I, I, I can see that just having known you for a couple of minutes. She also says you were known, though, for your ruthlessness in business. Would you agree that you were ruthless? And if so, what form would you say your ruthlessness took? Um, I don't think I was ruthless. Maybe from an artist's point of view, they, could, they may perceive me to be ruthless. But uh, I, you know, I mean... Uh, I did learn from Shep Gordon to uh, go out there, get the best deal you can for your client. Uh, did that mean screwing somebody over in the process? No. Are there times where you do have to screw somebody over in the process? I suppose. I mean, I can remember uh, a band I was managing and, uh, I knew there was a musician in that band that this band wasn't going anywhere as long as that guy was in the band. So I knew he had to be replaced. Um, those kinds. Of, is that ruthless? I guess from that guy's point of view, it was. Uh, so you sometimes you do have to make decisions that may appear to be ruthless. But uh, uh, if you're not willing to do those kinds of things, you better find another industry to work in. Sherry also says that you were known for your epic Hollywood Hills parties. What are uh, what what are, I'm I'm, pict I'm picturing white carpets. Uh, what what are we what are we talking about here exactly? Well, it's yeah. I, I used to have some good. It's funny because in her book, yeah, she talks about going to a party of mine with uh, with her boyfriend, who I don't know who who was at the time. I have absolutely no recollection at all of her being there. And she talks about getting completely uh, messed up and uh, falling on the floor and her boyfriend had to pick her up. And this is all in her book about a party. I don't remember any of that. Were drugs being consumed at parties? Well, yeah, we're talking about, uh, you know, the uh, late seventies, early eighties. And, uh, um, you know, I certainly didn't know very many people that weren't consuming drugs. So there was a lot of that going on. She seemed to uh, have uh, memorialized one of my parties in her book, one that I don't even remember. But, uh, you know, it was part of the uh, part of, the, you know, part of the lifestyle, I suppose. I'm curious, in in a general sense, how did the work, you know, nowadays we call it the work-life balance that, you know, you got to get your work done, but you got to enjoy your life at the same time. How did that work for these people? I was literally this morning, I was at a CVS and I'm listening to uh, one of the Fleetwood Mac singles from Rumors. Needless to say, it's terrific. Needless to say, it sounds as fresh now as it did the day that it came out. So meticulously composed, so meticulously performed, so meticulously produced. 
I find it so hard to reconcile. Alice Cooper, you worked with Alice Cooper for years to reconcile the idea that it's not uh, just a, a, a fable or a myth that a lot of these people overdid it with drugs and alcohol. Many of these people admittedly had huge problems. Many of these people admittedly needed multiple stints in rehab, and yet they got the work done. I, I guess my question is, were people more productive on cocaine and Jack Daniels then than they are now or was there kind of I'll do this on the weekend but Monday morning I'm going to go for a jog and then go record rumors I think it's I think it works something like this <clears throat> well when a band or an artist starts to achieve success yeah they're probably drinking and doing coke and does it enhance their ability to uh, perform or yeah Probably in the beginning, because they feel good, you know. But after a while, I think it starts to turn on them. And then they find themselves being more unproductive. And, uh, you know, that's when the rehab starts to go in. And some of them can clean up and some of them can. And the ones that don't, usually uh, uh, that's the end of their career. So, yeah, it does are they able to be productive while consuming those kinds of intoxicants? Uh, my take is yes, in the beginning, but as it gets worse and worse, their productivity starts to decrease more and more. Hey, uh, there, I talked about, not the single amount, but, you know, I talk about George Clinton in my book. Yeah. Um, he, uh, he was a fascinating uh, uh, record producer and uh, as his consumption of drugs increased, he became less and less efficient in the studio until he was hardly able to work in a studio at all. So, you know, that somehow or other he survived it. And, uh, he certainly, uh, you know, he's sober today. Uh, so, yeah, he did survive it. Same thing with Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper was never a huge druggie. He liked his alcohol, the VO and Coke, but uh, it wasn't until long after I had left him that he really started to get into some, you know, serious drug problems. And I think that only lasted a couple of years and he did clean up. He's been sober for decades. Yeah. He's been sober for longer than he was ever partying. Right. But he says there's those couple of albums in the, the, I guess, very early eighties that he says he doesn't even remember making. So obviously by the time you were, you were gone, uh, things, yeah. things picked yeah. up a little bit. You, we should touch on, you had your own issues, not of the exact same nature, but you paid a price for your involvement with the drug world as well. I did. Uh, yeah, I was never that much of a druggie, but, uh, you know, once I had uh, started to, um, uh, I had lost George Clinton as a client, and uh, uh, that was a, 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 um, a huge part of my, my income was gone because of it, and I had... Uh, I decided to turn to uh, selling cocaine. I became a coke dealer, and uh, which was very profitable until, of course, I got caught. And then there's a very interesting chapter in my book about my uh, my time in prison, which uh, mm -hmm. I guess is a chapter in my life. So it's in the book. Well, you know, as you said. Uh 
there's there's some luck involved at every juncture, and that was one time where you know you you you, you rolled snake eyes. I guess D- did you think it would have been reasonable yeah. to guess that your your life in the music business would be over after having gone to jail? Did you expect that you could pick anything like where you left off? Having no, gone to jail? I didn't. I I really didn't think so. I. Uh... I spent a total of 14 months in, in uh, jail. And when I got out, I uh, started working as a handyman doing uh, various jobs. You know, a lot of my friends are blue collar guys, uh, uh, builders, construction contractors, electricians. So I knew, I knew the uh, uh, rudiment uh, skills of those and uh skills and i uh, so i started doing handyman work i was i wasn't going to sell drugs again but i slowly started to eke my way back into the music industry until it got to the point i was doing more music than it was handyman and did more music less handyman and somehow or other landed back uh, smack dab in the middle of the music industry and uh uh, became very focused, and I was able to uh, accomplish probably more after uh, d- prison than I did prior to. Yeah, you were right up in the mix with. The, I just saw uh, minutes before we started rolling here that there's a, a documentary about ne- uh, Woodstock '99 that has just gone up. I think today on on Netflix. You were well, you weren't in the middle of that maelstrom, but you were watching that maelstrom from from a safe distance i did i was i I had some friends who went i've never regretted not going was it was that as bad as it sounded not for me Uh, i mean george played the night before i see and uh up until maybe the last hour of the entire festival everything seems to be uh calm and you know uh uh it wasn't until that uh you know, the last hour or two of the, of the festival where all hell broke loose and we were in the process of leaving. So, yeah, I sort of watched it from the periphery for a minute. And then it was, come on, let's get the hell out of here. So it didn't really affect me all that much. And and prior to that happening, it was beautiful. George played in front of 180,000 people. Um, Bootsy did a walk on. It was, uh, you know, uh, maybe the highlight of my uh musical career that very moment it was uh you know it was a, a pinnacle of some kind so which segues into george clinton's blurb it's really amazing the people who have been uh who are kind enough to uh speak on your behalf on the sleeve of the book george clinton says first as a booking agent then as a personal manager for p-funk during our wildest tours david was mission control for the mothership now alice cooper you've already said was maybe not as out of control, nowhere near as out of control as the public image might suggest, there had to be some moments with P-Funk and with George Clinton. Let me put it to you this way. At the height of George Clinton's and P-Funk's insanity, if you had to take a sabbatical and you had 30 seconds with the person who was going to be filling in for you, what would you, what advice would you give somebody if they had to replace you in that job at the zenith of the craziness? See, that's an interesting question. I've never been uh, uh, been posed to me before. Um, 
Well, you know, George was, to say the least, difficult. But, you know, he, he was a nice guy. I can't, you know, uh, there was nothing mean about George. You know, he uh, he had little control over his life. So all kinds of crazy things would happen. He surrounded himself with crazy people. So crazy things would happen. And uh, I just, I would advise someone who replaced me in that job, just take each incident as it comes to you one at a time and try and be clear headed enough to figure out how to deal with it. Um, you know, I was used to it at that point. I, uh, I mean, managing George Clinton was, uh, I mean, there was not even a set number of people in the band, you know, <laughs> pull into some town and uh, some kid would say, George, you know, I play guitar. I don't know every song. And, you know, I realized and next thing you know, the kids in the band, you know, for the <laughs> next two weeks. And uh, can I bring my dog with me too? I can, you know, um, so everything was always in flux with George, you know, uh, it, um, you really had to do a dance to deal with George, you know, the, weeks he he didn't pay people and you know you have to deal with that and uh you know i tried to put myself in a position where i i didn't have to uh i didn't have to hold my hand out for the money when i was his agent i i just took it from the escrow account where everybody else had to beg for their money and when i was his manager i made sure that whoever whatever the agency was i represented him at the time paid my commission directly to me without me having to ask George for it. Uh, so that saved a lot of wear and tear on me. Of course, I have no hair anymore. <laughs> I, th I think that may have had a lot to do with George as well. Um, and uh, I think the final the final blurb from the book, there's this uh, agent who's sort of a huge figure, at least in your mind, in his own right, Johnny Podell. Tell me a little mm -hmm. bit about him. Johnny Podell, as I said in the book, is a one of a kind, maybe one of the most charismatic people on the face of the earth. He, um, uh, I think I said in the book, I've been in a room with Johnny, with the likes of Mick Jagger and Robert Plant, uh, Rod Stewart, Leslie West, all in the same room at the same time. And Johnny Padell would be the center of attention with all of these people, he, uh, he, and, uh, he might've been the best agent uh, there ever was. Uh, he was Alice's agent, the Allman brothers, Crosby, Stills and Nash, uh, George Harrison. Uh, I can't even think of all of them. No, there's a big list into the eighties as well. I want to say Cindy Lauper, maybe. Yes. Cindy Lauper. Um, yeah, he's, he's still the man today. He and is, uh, I, I talked about him. He's the world's greatest asker. He can ask for the most incredible, the most unreasonable of things and make it sound personal, you know, perfectly reasonable. And if you didn't see it that way, boy, were you out of line. I mean, which is a great quality if you're going to be an agent. Sure. So. And yet he says of you. And this is this is uh, Johnny speaking in my career of over 40 years as an agent to some of the biggest rock stars of all time with the most oversized personalities, as you might imagine. This was the first time the road manager emerged as the star everyone wanted to be. 
David Liebert. What do you say? <laughs> what do you say to that? Well, I think it might be a bit of an exaggeration, but uh, you know, uh, it was nice of Johnny to say so. I think what it was was. When I was on the road with Alice, I ended up hiring some of my friends from New York. Like I said, they were in construction. They were electricians. Uh, they were blue collar guys and uh, people that I became friendly with out at, uh, uh, at Fire Island. You know, we had, I had this whole mob of guys I hung out with. You know, they were real womanizers and partiers, and, but hard workers. They really fit in really well. Uh, with the Alice Cooper uh, uh, group uh, entourage. And I think their, their pension for hard work and busting chops and uh, chasing women and all, it had an effect on everybody on, on the road. Uh, so I don't think it was just me. It was just the way me and my friends were. Everybody wanted to emulate the way we we were, Alice and Shep included, you know. So I think that's what Johnny was referring to. But it was very it was very nice of him to say that. Well, I've enjoyed the time that I've spent with the book, and uh, believe me, we've really only scratched the surface of all the stories that are in there. And and really, it's interesting that you get down to the nuts and bolts of how tours back then actually worked, which is not something that I've, I've learned a whole lot about. There is this real blue collar element to rock and roll that people don't tend to think of. I don't know how incredibly atypical this was. One time I was in the same set of rooms as uh, Elton John and there was a bunch of like roadie guys there. He was doing a rehearsal and his whole crew was there. And I was there for like 45 minutes before I realized that Elton John had been in the room with them the entire time and they're just trading stories and joking and slapping knees and stuff like that. And of all the rock stars, we tend to think of them, you know, Elton John is the guy who lives in rooms surrounded by roses, yet he spent his entire professional life around a bunch of guys who move equipment around all day. The rock and roll, as practiced on the road, is more blue collar than people realize, isn't it? I think it is. And I think the thing that separates when it comes to rock stars, the good guys from the bad guys, at least from my perspective, is um, Alice Cooper never took himself seriously for one instant. He took what he did seriously. That's how he made his living. But he just wanted to be one of the guys. And I, that was the same with Elton. You know, he wanted to be perceived as a nice guy, one of the guys. And uh, you could see that in his um, in his interactions with his with his crew and the people that he met, uh, he didn't want anybody walking away saying, oh, God, Alice Cooper, what an asshole that guy is. Um, and the guys that don't care about that, um, no names mentioned. Sure. Certainly Alice and Elton were not uh, uh, two of them. But the guys that weren't like that um, uh, were not, you know, uh, probably had a uh, – a difficult uh, time on a lot of different levels because uh, I think that people that work for rock stars uh, want to be appreciated. And I think the, the good ones do appreciate them for what they do and who they are. Listen, rock stars don't have a lot of, a lot of real friends. It's not like, you know, they can, they can meet uh, people under normal circumstances. They really can. So they're friends of the people that they work with for the most part. 
and they and they end up knowing these people for decades. You know, they mean something to them. Your book is called Rock and Roll Warrior, My Misadventures with Alice Cooper, Prince. There it, is. there it is. George Clinton, Living Color, The Runaways, and more. It's available for pre-sale now at Sunset Boulevard Books website, which is sunsetblvdbooks.co. Um, my guest has been David Bieber. Thank you, David. Thanks, Mike. It's been a lot of fun. 